We are uh, continuing our study through the doctrines of Scripture, the major doctrines of Scripture. We're calling this class uh, Systematic Theology. Theology, you understand, is the doctrine of God or the study of God. And um, systematic just means that we're doing it in an orderly way. Instead of, uh, instead of going through chronologically through the Bible, which we could do it that way, um, or going through as the, the Bible is laid out for us, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and so on, that would be more of a biblical theology. Uh, we're taking a systematic approach, so we want to see each doctrine uh, as it is expressed in each part of Scripture. So in the Old Testament, in, in the Gospels, in the New Testament, so on. And uh, we've actually come near the end of our study of systematic theology Part 1. There's two parts to this. And uh, so this is actually class number 12 of 13 of Systematic Theology 1. And then we'll have 13 more for Systematic Theology 2. All that means is if you take the whole thing, we're almost halfway done. And so those of you who have been here for for uh, most of it, uh, then, uh, then you've done well to make it this far. So this morning, the person of the Holy Spirit... Let me begin with a word of prayer and ask for God's help as we try to understand these things. Father, we uh, thank You that by Your Spirit we have understood that You have made all things and that You are the Creator of all things and that, um, that You have convinced us that Jesus Christ is the only way. And if it were not for Your Spirit, we would be lost in our sins and destined for an eternal hell But thanks be to You, the triune God who has allowed us to understand and respond to Your truth. May we live in light of it. May Your Spirit continually guide us. May we be sensitive to His leading. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're going to spend time next time, which is going to be two weeks from now, on the work of the Holy Spirit. So we'll we'll, uh, talk about the things that the Holy Spirit is responsible for throughout the Scriptures. Today we want to see that the Holy Spirit is a person. That that He is a person. This is from our church's statement of faith written in 1939 when the church began. And it says that we believe that the Holy Spirit is a divine person equal with God, uh, equal with God the Father and God the Son and of the same nature and that He was active in the creation and that in His relationship to the unbelieving world, He restrains the evil one until God's great purpose is fulfilled. And then further, we believe about the Holy Spirit that He convicts of sin and of righteousness and of judgment, and that He bears witness to the truth of the gospel in preaching and testimony, and that He is the agent of the new birth, and that He seals, endues, guides, teaches, witnesses, sanctifies, and helps the believer in accordance with the Scriptures. Okay, so we're going to focus mostly on from here up today and the previous slide. This will be for next time, the the works of the Spirit, the things that He does. I've put for you on your handout there in front of you the Nicene Creed, which reads that we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and Giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and Son, who is worshipped and glorified together with the Father and Son, and who spoke through the prophets. We can easily minimize 
the person of the Holy Spirit. We can focus a lot on God the Father and God the Son, and rightfully so. We should have focus on both persons, but we should also have a focus and concern for the Holy Spirit and His person. We don't want to overlook Him and His responsibility and His um, charge in, in, in turning believers to God. And um, so we have a couple of different um, mindsets out there, I guess you could say, within our Christian culture, and that is some tend to focus on the Holy Spirit to an extreme, like that's all they care about, and and when they get that way, you recognize that there's some doctrines that they um, that they can uh, they can have out of line. The other extreme is to not have any concern for him at all, and not really acknowledge him and his work. And uh, and so, really, in the 1900s, you had an increased interest in the Holy Spirit with the rise of the charismatic movement and the Pentecostalism, obviously. And this brought a lot of controversy into the evangelical church. And as a result, people who uh, were trying to stay true to the Scriptures as closely as possible, they saw that extreme over there, Pentecostalism and charismatic and the charismatic movement. And and then they said, you know what? They 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 have too much emphasis on the Spirit and His work. Like, okay, when I talk about Pentecostalism and and the the uh, Charismatic movement, I'm talking about the idea that there's speaking in tongues still going on today. That there is miracle working, and so all these people are just waiting for this charge of the Spirit and and for this uh, experiential. Uh, feeling that they receive from the Spirit. And so those who were trying to stay true to, to, and saw the problem with this actually moved to the other extreme, which is, well, we don't want to see, see anything happen. We don't want to have any sort of uh, uh, sense that the Holy Spirit is, is acting in that way. And obviously you, you recognize that there are problems at both ends. And I would call this a wooden ritualism. That, that we tend to limit the work of the Spirit as if He's just a force or He's not really that important to our ministry at all. And I think both extremes are dangerous, and so we have to, to be able to guard against both of them. This morning we want to uh, continue our studies of the, the essential doctrines of the Christian faith. And... Um, so we want to look at uh, the Holy Spirit, His person, and we also want to look at it in a larger section too, that the Holy Spirit is part of the Trinity. And so we'll talk about the Trinity a little bit more. We've talked about Him before, or we've talked about the Trinity before, and now we want to do that again. All right, so how, how, can we, how do we know from Scripture that the Spirit is God? How do we know that, 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 um, who He is? We want to start by looking at some biblical names for the Holy Spirit. Some biblical names for the Holy Spirit. And you're going to find lots of different names. Start out with the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, He's often referred to as Spirit or the Spirit um, without any qualification. But other times, He's referred to as the Spirit of God. Like in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, where the Spirit of God moved over the face of the waters. Right, And then... Uh, He's referred to as the Spirit of the Lord 
Judges chapter 3. But he's only referred to as the Holy Spirit three times in the Old Testament. Psalm 51, which is David's contrite prayer after having committed sin with Bathsheba. He says, take not thy Holy Spirit from me. And uh, I, I think we'll talk about that more next time with, when we talk about the work of the Spirit, why he's, he's praying for something like that. But he's only referred to as the Holy Spirit three times. In the New Testament, he's called the Spirit of your Father, Matthew chapter 10. He's called the Spirit of Christ in Romans chapter 8. He's called the Eternal Spirit in Hebrews chapter 9. He's called the Spirit of Truth in John chapter 14. And, of course, um, another name that you probably recognize will recognize, Counselor or Comforter in John 14. When Je- Jesus is praying to God, he says, or He's speaking to His disciples there, actually, and He says, you know, when I leave, then the Comforter will come. In fact, until I leave, the Comforter can't come. So, so uh, once I leave, He will come and, uh, and teach you all things and so on. Alright, so just from the names that He's given, that He is the Eternal Spirit, that He's the Spirit of God, the Spirit of the Lord, the Spirit of Christ, that suggests to us that this is not just a, a, an abstract force, okay, but, but rather a concrete person, person of the Trinity, Spirit of God. Further proof that He is God is found in His divine attributes. His divine attributes. Um, We'll just kind of quickly go through these. Uh, We'll we'll look up some verses here in just a minute um, to show you that the Holy Spirit is God. In fact, I'm going to show you the the key text. Um, But for now, we'll just talk about His divine attributes. Eternality. If, If any creature is given uh, I mean any creature can't be given no creature can be given this title eternal okay because that means they have no beginning and no ending and since they're a creature okay if like you and I we're creatures we have a beginning uh, but but with the spirit he is called eternal so the fact that he is eternal suggests that he is God he's also omnipresent Psalm 139. Anybody have any idea what Psalm 139 is about? Okay, it is about that. We are fearfully and wonderfully made. The the passage, I think, be, uh, actually continues on after that. The, what, what Jonathan is mentioning there in 7-10, through 10, talking about where can I go from your spirit, right? Perhaps you've heard a song that, that takes these words and puts it into music. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I hide from your love? If I go to the depths of hell, you're there. If I go to the top, to the end of the sea, you're there. No matter where I go, you're there. The idea is that the Spirit of God is everywhere. It's not that, that we go, when we go there, He goes on ahead of us so that we're there. Or, or so that He's there before us. No, He's always there. And that's the nature of God. He is omnipresent. God is also omniscient, and the Holy Spirit is is omniscient. Here in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, the Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. For who among men knows the thoughts of man except the man's spirit within him? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God, listen to this, except the Spirit of God. Okay, The deep things of God cannot be known by creatures. But the Spirit can know them. Why? 
Because He is God. He is omniscient. He is all-knowing. Alright. Second uh, thing we need to look at, we see the deity of the Holy Spirit in that He possesses divine attributes, but also He accomplishes divine work. He does work that only God can do. Now again, we're going to talk about this in two weeks, so I'm going to leave a lot of this for, for then. But, but for example, only God can take someone who is spiritually dead and make him spiritually alive. And yet, that's attributed in John chapter 3 to the Spirit. That unless someone is born of the Spirit, they cannot enter the kingdom of God. That is, the Spirit has to do the work. And so if that's the case, then that suggests, that shows that the Spirit is God. Um, Okay, so a person must be born of the Spirit, John 3. Only God can regenerate a person. John 1 talks about that. All right, and we'll talk about more examples next class. So we know that the Spirit is God because He's given divine attributes. He's given divine names. He's given divine attributes. He's given divine work. And then turn to Acts chapter 5. And we'll see this next one, that Scripture identifies Him as God. And this is... uh, You ever get in a debate with somebody... Maybe someone that comes to your door or maybe you talk to them at work and they say the Spirit is not God. He's just a force. He's not a person. And all these things. Acts chapter 5 is the best place to go to show that the Spirit is God. Familiar story for, for most of us. That is the story of Ananias and Sapphira who wanted to, to be first. They wanted to be known in the church. They wanted to be known for their giving. And so they make a big scene with selling this property, of course. And I want you to notice the language that's used here um, when Peter says that they've lied. All right, Verse 1, But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property and kept back some of the price for himself with his wife's full knowledge and bringing a portion of it, he laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to, notice this, the Holy Spirit and to keep back some of the price of the land? So, who does Peter say that he's lying to? He's lying to the Holy Spirit. Alright? Now look at verse 4. While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not under your control? Why is it that you've conceived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to... And this is where we would expect. You've not lied to men, but to the Holy Spirit. That's what he just said in verse 3. But instead, what does he say? You lied to God. Okay, so what we see here is that the Holy Spirit and God in this passage are interchangeable, meaning that the Holy Spirit is God. To lie to the Holy Spirit, Peter is saying, it's a lie to God because the Holy Spirit is God. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul appeals to the Christians that are there as God's temple, and he says that the Holy Spirit lives in them. Well, who lives in the temple? God does. But but he, but Peter's saying that you're the temple and the Spirit lives in you. Okay, so you see the, the interchangeableness of the Spirit and God there because they are one. So, we have these divine names that are given to Him, divine attributes, divine work, and that He is identified as God. 
And then further, we know that He is God because um, He's identified as Yahweh or Jehovah in the Old Testament. Now, these I'm going to have to show you, uh, so we're going to have to do a little bit of turning. Keep, uh, let's turn to Acts 28. Acts 28. And once you find that, put your finger there. We're going to come back to it in just a second. Acts 28. And then Isaiah 6. And what I'm doing here is I'm just giving you an example that the Holy Spirit is equated with God in the Old Testament. And uh, there's several examples that I could show you. There are multiple examples that I could show you, but I'm just going to show you a couple. Okay, Isaiah chapter 6, verse 9. Um, well, actually notice verse 8 because we want to see who's talking here. Would someone read verses 8 through 10 for us? All right, so who's speaking here in verse 8? Okay, the voice of the Lord. Okay, and the word Lord there actually, if you notice the letters that are used, they're in uh, regular uh, small case letters or large, uh, you got an uppercase for the first letter and then the small, smaller case, lower case, excuse me, Lord. So that would be, that's actually referring to uh, the, old, the um, Hebrew word Adonai. But if you look down in verse 12, there's a continuation of this. And the, notice the letters of the word Lord are different. See how they're kind of smaller caps? Whenever they're like that, that's referring to Yahweh. That's referring to this, this Hebrew word that's referring to God as the I Am. Okay, now, both of those are names for God, but, but one is the covenant name of God. And what I'm trying to show you is that the Holy Spirit is... Yahweh, he he is he is God. All right. Now, so here's the passage in Isaiah. Now turn to Acts chapter 28 and verse 25. And notice who Paul says is speaking in Isaiah chapter six. Here is where we would expect him to say the Lord or God. But instead, in verse 25, it says, when they did not agree with one another, they began leaving after Paul had spoken one parting word. The Holy Spirit rightly spoke through Isaiah the prophet to your father, saying, and then he quotes what Paul just read. Go to this people and say, you will keep on hearing, but will not understand. You will keep on seeing, but will not perceive, and so on. So what is Paul saying here? That this is actually the Holy Spirit who is speaking in Isaiah chapter 6. All right, so that makes sense how the New Testament writers actually attribute um, the Holy Spirit, the, the, the words of God, to the Holy Spirit, suggesting, again, 
that He is God. Now, I'll just put this other one up here on the screen. It's very similar um, where it says in Psalm 95.7, For He is our God and we are the people of His pasture and the sheep of His hand. Today, if you would hear His voice, do not harden your hearts and so on. For He is our God. Okay, And then Hebrews 3 quotes Psalm 95 and says, Just as the Holy Spirit says today, if you hear His voice. So you see again that the that the the words of God in the Old Testament are 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 attributed to the Holy Spirit. All right. So we could do that a number of times in a lot of different passages. See that the Holy Spirit is the one who's speaking here, and all that says is that we don't have uh, two separate beings here. We actually have two separate persons. But but they are one and the same being. They are God. All right, we'll talk about that here in just a second. Any questions on uh, on the Holy Spirit being God, or any comments on on what we've looked at so far? I got a comment. It might not make a lot of sense to people, but at a five mile in Telegraph, about twenty two years ago, I was under terrible conviction. Yeah. Yeah, and and the the proof in that is not ultimately in our experience, which I don't think that's what Bill's saying here. But but it's ultimately in what the scriptures say about that experience. Was that legitimately the Holy Spirit? And that's what we have to always be checking it against. Obviously, uh, you know, uh, fruit that comes as a result of the Spirit's conviction, a, a contrite heart, a desire to follow God and so on are, are obvious signs that the Spirit, that was indeed the Spirit. All right, now we want to look at the Holy Spirit in relationship to the Trinity, that He is a distinct person. Okay, so we have separate persons within the Trinity. We have God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And yet, He is equal. And that is, in essence, in His being, He is God. All right, that's that's the doctrine of the Trinity, in a nutshell. In fact, uh, I think I might have, no, I didn't, I didn't put that on there for you, but let me just give you a uh, a definition of the Trinity that I uh, have gotten here from from the materials that I've been using from uh, Capitol Hill Baptist. Um, the Trinity uh, means that there is but one God, Father, Son, and Spirit, distinct in person but each person is fully God. Okay, let me say that again. There is but one God, Father, Son, and Spirit, each distinct persons, but each person is fully God. One God, distinct persons, but each person is fully God. All right, that's what the Trinity... Now, it's hard for us to um, try to wrap our minds around that, but... but um, what I want you to understand is that, that the word Trinity is not found in your Bible. Okay? 
not, it's not in there. Um, so that was actually a, um, an understanding that was drawn from the Scriptures based on clear text. And so what we want to do is, is show you that they are, in fact, three different persons, and yet they are one. Um, because what can happen is we can move to what is called modalism. Okay, there's, there's a teaching out there called modalism, and um, even if you've never heard the name of it, perhaps you've heard the idea. And that is that, that God is actu- actually wears three different coats. Okay, so He just goes to His closet. Yeah, pretend this is a closet. It's kind of a closet, right? And He pulls out His father coat, puts His father coat on. Now I'm going to act like the father. Okay, now I'm going to take that off, and I'm going to put my son coat on so I can go to the cross, for example. I'm going to take that off and I'm going to put my spirit on so now I can live in the hearts of believers. Do you see? And now what we have is not one God, do we? It goes against Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, which says there is one God. Okay, The Lord our God is one. Uh, it's actually talking about three different gods. Okay, So we have to be careful with the way that we, we use this. Um, we, we try to make... Uh, analogies, because uh, really there's not there's not an analogy that works. God is completely unique, and I'll talk about a couple of the analogies that are often used to try to explain the Trinity, and, I'll, and uh, hopefully you'll see that those are not valid either. There's only one God; He exists in three persons. Now, is that really reasonable? Um, is it reasonable to say that we have one God with three persons? And the answer to that is yes and no. I, I've been repeating this here for you. I should have just put it up on the screen here. Sorry about that. Um, so if you're trying to write that definition down, there it is. It is reasonable um, in the sense that it's not irrational. There's nothing inherently contradictory to say that God is one but he's also three persons. Um, but it's also not reasonable in the sense that we can't fully wrap our minds around it. We can't, full, we can't discover it on our own from human reason. It actually has to be given to us by the Spirit. The Spirit has to be able to convince us that the Trinity is, is real based on the, the text of Scripture. And um, so... It's, the, the two main examples that are used, okay, obviously that one example is used with the quote the code idea, which is that's actually heresy, okay. But this other one, these other ones wouldn't I wouldn't call them heresy. I just think they're inadequate examples or analogies. The first is a piece uh, a, a pie, okay. So the idea is if you have a cherry pie and cut into three sections, um, each section is distinct, but the the Pie filling, you could say, kind of oozes over. Once you cut it, it kind of oozes over into the other parts of the pie, and so it's still kind of one. The other example is the egg. You've heard that one. You have the shell and the yolk and the, um, what is it? Okay, that thing. Yes, the white. Thank you for for us uh, uh, less sophisticated people. Uh, um so you have the three parts of the egg, and so you have the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And, and it's all one egg, you could say, but then there are also some distinct features of them. But but these are really, 
I mean, if you think about it, the the piece of pie, for example, is not real. Once you take that piece of pie out, it's not pie. It's not the whole thing anymore. It's actually something else now. It's actually a piece of pie, and so you don't have any you don't have any real distinction there. Um, same thing with the egg. When you take those three things apart, uh, you don't have one egg anymore. You have something else, and so those. I don't think really adequately describe what the Trinity is. And so I would actually suggest that there's nothing in the natural world that can help us fully understand it. Um, but um, I think it's B.B. Um, Warfield says that the fundamental proof that God is Trinity is supplied by the fundamental revelation of the Trinity. Okay, so if you want to prove to someone or to yourself that the Trinity is legitimate, then you have to go to where the Trinity has revealed itself, which is where? In the Scriptures, exactly. That is to say, you want proof, go to the incarnation of God the Son and the outpouring of God the Holy Spirit. In a word, Jesus Christ and Holy Spirit are the fundamental proofs, Warfield says, of the doctrine of the Trinity. And so what you're not going to find in the Scriptures is a full argument for this is the reason that the Trinity is legitimate. Okay, Here it is. Let me explain it to you. The, 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 the epistles don't do it. The Gospels don't do it. The Old Testament doesn't do it. But there are, there are clear implications and allusions to the Trinity that suggest and show us that the Trinity is, in fact, legitimate. Turn to Matthew chapter 3 and I'll show you a dis- at least the, dis- the distinctions here. This is at the baptism of Jesus. You have all three persons of the Trinity at work here. Matthew chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. After being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water. See if you can pick out all three persons. And behold, the heavens were opened, and He saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting on Him. And behold, a voice out of the heavens said, This is My beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Okay, so let's start with the first person of the Trinity. Where do we find Him? The first person. Sorry, the first person, God the Father. Where do we find Him? Okay, at the end, right. Verse 17. This is the voice coming from heaven. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. He says this a couple other times in the Gospels as well. Alright, where do we see the second person of the Trinity? God the Son. Alright, Jesus is the one who's actually in human flesh, being baptized physically. And then the third person of the Trinity, God the Spirit. Okay, see that? See Him there at the end of verse 16? So the Right. He came he came and descended upon Christ like a dove. Good. So you have all three persons of the Trinity there at the baptism of Jesus, so they are separate but equal. They're distinct but equal. Matthew chapter twenty eight, when Jesus commissions his disciples, he says, Go into all the world, uh, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. 2 Corinthians 13:14 you have on your handout there um, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God 
and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Okay, so while the scriptures don't, um, while the scriptures don't explicitly come out and say, "Here's the doctrine of the Trinity. Let me give you, let me give you some proofs why this is true." Um, it does show uh, clear evidence that that is in fact true, and it's hinted at in the whole Old Testament. Perhaps the Old Testament saint didn't understand it as clearly as we understand it because of the New Testament revelation that we have. But there are certainly some hints toward it, right? In Genesis chapter 1, let us make man in our image. Let us make man in our image and our likeness. Okay, We don't have multiple gods there. And again, Israel didn't think of it in those terms, right? They thought of it that the Lord is one. We have one Lord. All right. Next, the... um, the Spirit is sent by the Father and the Son. Okay, this doesn't mean that He's inferior in essence. He's still, he's still equal. He is God. But He is subordinate in function. This is the way you should understand the Trinity. Okay, That there's different functions, but the same essence, the same being. And that's what's going on here. And you have subordination. That's why you have... What, we, what I just referred to is the first person of the Trinity, the second person, and third person. That sounds like a hierarchy, right? And that's exactly what it is within the Trinity. There's a hierarchy. There's a difference in function. But that doesn't make them any less equal to each other. Same in essence, different in function. Jesus here in John 14 tells the disciples, I'll ask the Father and He will give you another helper, another comforter, another counselor. All right, I need to move quickly. Um, I need to prepare for baptism. Unless someone else wants to teach the rest of this class, let me know. No? Okay. All right, well, I'll try to finish this up quickly here and hopefully have time for a few questions. All right, now, I began by saying I want to talk about the person of the Holy Spirit. So what we want to move to now is that the Holy Spirit has personality. Um, what do we mean by that, that, that He has personality? Well, I think I've mentioned this before, but a person is someone who has mind, will, and emotions. Okay, so that takes out all the animal creatures. They don't have, they don't have self-consciousness. Okay, they don't even know that they exist because they don't have minds like that. They don't have a will. They simply act on instinct. They don't have emotions. It just looks like it sometimes, okay? Some of you have dogs and are really starting to get frustrated. You're like, I know my animal has emotions, okay? But they don't. They're, they're not made in the image of God. Um, so, so like us, we are made in the image of God. We are persons. And the reason that we have mind, will, and emotions is because God does. We, we reflect God in a way. We have mind, will, and emotions. Okay, And I want you to see that the Holy Spirit also has mind, will, and emotions. talked about this earlier, modalism, so I'm going to skip over that. All right. So, how do we know that the Spirit is a person? Well, He's referred to using personal pronouns, not indefinite pronouns. Okay, the difference is, is between He or Him and it. Okay, what you're not going to find in the scriptures is that the Holy Spirit is referred to as it. 
Okay, I really hope it comes upon the, the body of Christ. No, that is actually, that is actually a, a disgrace to the person of the Holy Spirit. He is a person. He's referred to as he or him. Um, for example, um, uh, or he's, if you use it in the first person, when the Holy Spirit is speaking, Acts chapter 10, while Peter was still thinking about the vision, um, the Spirit said to him, Simon, three men are looking for you, so get up and go downstairs. Do not hesitate to go with them, for I, the Holy Spirit says, for I have sent him them. And then uh, when he sets apart Barnabas and Saul in chapter 13, he says, uh, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul. So in the Scriptures, the Holy Spirit is referred to as He's never called it, and so that don't do that when you speak of the Holy Spirit. Don't do that when you're speaking of any person of the Trinity. Uh, they are persons. Just like you would not like it if someone called you it, so you should not do the same. To, I mean, how much more should you not do the same to the Holy Spirit? All right, he also has personal properties. That is, he has understanding. Okay, he's not just some abstract force out there, you know, that he just kind of gives out some energy or something like that. No, he's a, he's a person. He he knows things. He understands things. And that's why in 1 Corinthians 12 it says, all these are the work of one and the same Spirit. And He gives them to each one just as He determines. That's the second part. That's the will there. That He knows these things. He knows the things of God. He knows the deep things of God. And He's able to impart them to believers based on His own determination, obviously within the Godhead. And notice uh, when Jesus calls him the comforter, he doesn't call him the comfort. Okay, he, he is the comforter. That is, he is a person. He has personal properties, wisdom, will, power, and so on. All right. Um, he also has a personal act. He, he, he does personal activities. He's involved in personal activities. He speaks. We've already seen some verses that show us this. Hebrews chapter 3. Revelation chapter 2 says, To him who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. John 14, He will teach you all things. Romans 15, um, Romans 15, I urge you, brothers, by the Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, okay, that the Spirit actually has emotions and, and feelings and He has thoughts and determinations, and so on. Alright? Uh, he has emotion. We can actually grieve the Holy Spirit of God, right? Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30. As believers, we can grieve the Holy Spirit. And so, it's, He's not an impersonal force. And He also has power. Um, can you turn there to Luke chapter 4? Because I want to just show you... Okay, because what some people say is kind of like this modalism idea that, okay, in the Old Testament, you had God the Father. God the Father was in the Old Testament. But then, when Jesus came, then you had God the Son. Okay? And then He moved out of the way, and now you have God the Spirit. And so what they say is, well, when you see the Spirit, it's really just, you know, it's really just this, uh, this one who's really taken place of, of God. Luke chapter 4, verse 14. Um, to 
say that the Holy Spirit is merely a power would make this verse illogical. Notice, and Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. So if the Spirit is just a power, let's just call the Spirit the power of God. Okay, that's what people, some people are suggesting, that He's just the power of God. Whenever you see the Spirit, replace with power. So let's do that now. Verse 14, And Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the power of God. Right? It makes it illogical. It doesn't make sense. And so that we know that the Spirit is God because He's, he's attributed, He has names attributed to Him. He has divine attributes attributed to Him. He's spoken of as God. He speaks on behalf of God. Okay, the Holy Spirit is God, and yet He is distinct. Now, we'll see clearly clearly a lot of these distinctions. That is His function the next time when we look at the works of the Holy Spirit. So, um, what's, what's amazing about this doctrine is that the only way we can be fully convinced in our mind that the Holy Spirit is a person, that He is God, yet uh, has a separate function within the Godhead as if the very Spirit about whom we are speaking makes it possible. I mean, the Spirit has to give us the wisdom that we need to understand. We can't know this on our own. So if, if you are affirming these things that I've been talking about this morning, the only thing we can attribute that to is the Holy Spirit. That's the Holy Spirit doing that. If you're denying these things, then you need the Holy Spirit to, to enlighten you. All right, got time for a quick question or comment? All right, anything? Where's the verse where it says the Holy Spirit convicts of sin? John 16:8. Convicts of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Yep. All right, let me pray and uh, we'll be dismissed. Father, you are good and uh, gracious to us and giving to us, leaving for us your Holy Spirit so that we can have a sense of Your presence in this age. And we long to be with You forevermore, but we know that we need to be prepared until that time uh, through the process of sanctification, which the Spirit does, through, uh, through this uh, glorification, which will not happen until we reach the next life. And so we pray that You would continue to pursue us and uh, allow Your Spirit to be at work within us. May we not minimize His work in our lives uh, Turning, making uh, our following of you a wooded ritualism. And may we not go too far and uh, be looking for experiences that are not of the Spirit, but may we be sensitive to His leading as He teaches us through Your Word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. No, I pushed the button to turn it off, but it's not. Yeah, it's still running. Yeah, but... What's that? Yeah, I I thought there was a simpler name, but I think, you know... No, I wasn't... That was that's section wasn't what I was thinking, but I thought there was... Okay, yeah, I had no idea. I'm sure, yeah.
down in my office. 